This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on another rousing edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. In today's episode, we're exploring a topic that seems to be on the minds of every single B2B revenue leader right now, growth. Everybody wants it, everybody needs it, everybody's chasing it. But how do we create and implement successful growth strategies? Discussing how sales intelligence plays into today's growth strategies is Frank Maylett, Chief Revenue Officer at Instructure. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Excited to be with you and then uh, all the listeners. Okay, Frank, before we get into the meat of our conversation and talk about this idea of sales intelligence, how it plays into growth, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about Instructure. Yeah, happily. So uh, Frank Maylett, I'm a native of Utah. Uh, most of my professional career has been in and out of the state. I had the opportunity to uh, work in New York for many years, Cincinnati, Bay Area, Dallas, and found our way back to Utah about 10 or so years ago and really enjoyed coming back to a very vibrant tech uh, environment here in Utah, which is a lot of fun. So uh, been in sales, sales leadership for a long time, been a CRO or CEO in various companies since uh, 1998, I believe. So a uh, uh, long, long time sitting where I'm sitting, which is good. My role is I'm part of the executive team, one of the company officers here at Instructure. We're publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And I report to our CEO, Steve Daly, and to the board. And I oversee all the sales and marketing, all the go-to-market functions for our company and being publicly traded, all the numbers are out there, but uh, finished last year at about $400 million of revenue and uh, growing very, very nicely in the marketplace. Excellent. So um, we're talking to the right guys. So, so Frank, before we get into the, you know, the less important, let's get really into the most important out of all of the, the places that you've lived and worked, wh where's been your favorite? Yeah, great question, Ryan. Uh, let's see. Um, are we going for ratings? If so, we'll check the, we'll check the largest metro area, say New York. <laughs> no, I want reality, Frank. I mean, really, uh, no. you know, so, so we, we've really enjoyed Utah a lot, but we would, we would move back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area in a heartbeat. We, we really dug the, the scene there, the people, the community. It felt like in Dallas, we lived in an area called South Lake, which was kind of in Northeast Tarrant County. Think right between uh, Dallas and Fort Worth, just slightly north. And we, we lived in a great community that was made up of, of really uh, non-Texans for the most part, folks that had migrated into that area. Expats, you know, from various states. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Escaping to the beautiful state of Texas. And, and you know, it's quite common to see a bumper sticker on a car in a neighborhood that says, not a native Texan, but we got here as fast as we could. <laughs> and uh, it was a, a great community, great weather, great people, uh, really enjoyed that area. That's great. I, I actually hear that a lot about the Dallas, the larger Dallas metro area. People love living there. So yeah. not, not a surprise. Um, all right, my friend. Well, let's hop into this. I'm excited for the conversation. Before we start getting into the strategies and those types of things, let's, let's set the stage a little bit. So uh, from your perspective, what do you see as the current state of sales intelligence? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And, and let me preface it by priorities and, and speak to what I think are some of the priorities and, and how I run a go-to-market organization. You know, in the old days, it was it was strictly around effort and attitude. And you'd go out there and you'd push and you'd pull and you'd try to make things happen, stay as busy and active in the marketplace as possible. But that pendulum has really swung quite a ways and it swung towards the, the area of data, information, intelligence. And uh, you've seen that migration in things like marketing. It was all about, uh, I used to call them pizza and balloon guys, which is, you know, uh, lunch and learns and lots of cool spiffs and swag and all those kinds of things. And it's, you know, marketing's really become a science. I sit in my marketing meetings with my marketing team and it feels like it's a PhD dissertation on, uh, on data and, and buyer behavior at a very numerical level. And it's great to see because we've gotten much smarter, much more efficient and effective in our marketing. And the same is in sales. You know, you think about all the sales, uh, the tech stack that's evolved over the last few years. You've got your typical salesforce.com and you've got, you know, Clary and you've got outreach and you've got all these tools now that plug into this uh, tech stack with the, with the sole intent of really ensuring that as sales leaders, we understand what's going on and why. And we're using data to make decisions and not just... Uh, gut feel, or as I, I lovingly call it, the tummy test around the decisions that we make. And what I found is in, in, in sales intelligence, it's it's been a little bit slower in developing. Mm. You know, we were talking about um, for many, many years, I used the, the technology offerings from primary intelligence and other companies. And, and that was a very human-esque, human-based kind of call interview sort of mentality but what I found is the intelligence that it gathered was critical to how I made decisions and how I ran my selling organizations. And these were some you know, really good quality, high, 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 high performing companies of good size that have, you know, were public or gone public and, and done amazing things. And, and the primary intelligence product really helped us do that. But the piece that was always in my head is, is why is this not on a more technical or tech based delivery method? You know, the, the effort of having these really smart people making phone calls to interview buyers was effective to a degree, but not scalable. Mm. And I think the, the sales intelligence market is now starting to get to that point. And OPI has got some great offerings around that and, and, and we're seeing some growth. But because you're trying to solve that human interaction piece, you know, our friends down south like Qualtrics, they're going to tell you it's a survey. But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of surveyed out in a large degree, you know, yeah, no matter what I do anymore, I get a survey. That's right. You sneeze. Hey, how was your sneeze? Tell us about your sneeze, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and at first I thought, you know, I'll be contributive and I'll, and I'll participate and I'll try to help them. And then the single question turns into 40 questions and about three, four uh, questions into it. I go, I'm, I'm done. I click out and just, just, you know, scrap the whole intent of trying to be a good guy and help them a bit. But I think that you know the concept around sales intelligence is solid, and that is trying to understand truly the buyer behavior and the seller behavior and how they intersected for success or how they missed each other and why. So I can make decisions involving enablement and training and marketing and, and all the go-to-market functions that we need to do. So I'm really energized about what the future holds in this space. And I look forward to a lot of the development that will come over the next few years and, and how we can better get that information in a very productive and efficient way. 
So you, you said something a, a minute ago that, that really I want to unpack a little bit, and that was specifically around uh, uh, the lag that you've seen in sales intelligence, right? It's, it's a little slower in catching up to maybe some of the other areas. Um, I'm really curious from your perspective, why, why do you think there's a lag in sales intelligence? Yeah, I, I think it's, it gets back to solving that really hard problem, and that is uh, the people involved that you've got sellers involved and you've got buyers involved and, and they both have their perspective as to what transpired during that sales process. And sometimes it's accurate and sometimes it's interpreted and it becomes an art of memory versus the science of memory. And, and I think the challenge has been, how do you align those two sources of data to create a holistic view of what truly transpired? And that's the challenge I think everyone faces in, in this space. And that is, the human element, how we solve for that. Hmm. So, you know, Frank, it, there's, it's so interesting to watch the, the, the tech stack build up for salespeople, uh, salespeople, sales in general, the tech stack that you're dealing talk about, um, talk about a PhD in, in uh, a dissertation, a dissertation in marketing, salespeople need a PhD just to run their damn tech stack at this point. I mean, it's, it's getting to a point where it's, you know, 10, 13, we've talked with some, some uh, guests on our podcast. They've had as many as 13 different tech pieces in their stack. Um, it feels like there's a little bit of the wild west out there in sales and sales intelligence, right? There's just tons of disparate issues. From a CRO perspective, you know, how does that create, what challenges does that create for you? Having just disparate tech stack, techs and, and massive numbers in the tech stack. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Ryan. And I think what it comes down to is, is where the blame lies and it really lies in the CRO's office. And, and why I say that is because we're grasping for data. You know, we're held to a very high standard of delivery involving the business objectives, whether it be bookings or revenue or conversions or whatever that metric happens to be. And we, we get enamored at times with the promise of a technology addition. And so we grab it, we grab it and we, we try to bolt it on to salesforce.com or HubSpot or whatever we're utilizing, thinking that's gonna solve our problem. And we're not taking the time to truly investigate and understand the two elements in my mind. The two elements are what the promise is and what the reality will be. And the reality is typically um, uh, colored by the fact that sales reps are not in this business to be technologists. We're here to interact. We're here to sell. We're here to close deals. Uh, it's a different kind of personality than a BI analyst or someone who loves living in the data. And too often as, as sales leaders, we grasp these tools thinking that, oh, it's just one more thing that a sales rep can, can deal with. And in reality, they can't deal with it. And we see that through behaviors, job satisfaction, great resignation, a lot of elements that affect selling organizations. So many years ago, I've got one advantage is that I'm um, you know, somewhere around 95 years old, I think. And, and I've been in this business a long time, Ryan. And, and many years ago, I recognized one thing and that my, sp my space, my place in the market is I, I come in and I help companies fix their problems mm. and get a very effective go-to-market strategy and succeed and deliver or over-deliver against the financial objectives. And, and one of the elements that, that I started doing many, many years ago was when I come onto a company, uh, I, I immediately take a look at the tech stack and I figure out exactly what is essential 
what is good to have or nice to have and what is creating weight on the seller's behavior. Mm, yeah. And I immediately cut out everything I can down to the core and then rebuild very slowly and methodically and, and purposefully to ensure that I've got the right tech for the sales team. So joining a structure, we experienced the same thing. I was brought on about three years ago to fix or go to market and change their, uh, their approach in the marketplace. Uh, we had grown to uh, a selling organization that had different, uh, bluntly different tech tools, approach, vocabulary based on region or verticals, and, and we were just a mess. And so it was a very easy cleanup for me to come in, blow everything up, and then rebuild from the foundation up. And you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that we eliminated over 50% of our tech stack. We just got rid of it and been able to grow from... Well, in, in two years, we went from a $200 million a year company to about a $400 million a year company. And, and we did that by becoming efficient and very focused on where the talent lies, where the aptitude sits within that talent and the tools they would need to deliver against the financial requirements. So we simplified, we made it easy. And in doing so, we've been able to retain the data that's critical and we've been able to grow into the data that is necessary or good to have and, and done so in a very purposeful way. Does that make sense? Oh, oh yeah, totally. To absolutely. I'm a huge fan of narrowing focus. Um, too many goals, too many text tech, it's distracting. You're never going to get anywhere. Or if you do, it's by accident. And how do you repeat it? We don't know. So I'm very curious to know, you use the word critical, right? You, you, when you came in under structure, you stripped out all the tech that you did not view as critical. What do you see as the most important forms of data sources for sales intelligence you know what are those critical sources of, of sales intelligence yeah you know when, when it comes to the critical tools that we built off of it was very simple it was salesforce.com so we had a crm um, that was very uh, powerful i then went into that crm and we eliminated over 200 steps in the process within the first six months making it easy for us to capture critical data so what happens again, quite often, uh, CROs and sales leaders over-engineer salesforce.com thinking, oh, I need to know, is that buyer left-handed or right-handed? So I'm going to build that into the, the questioning of the product. And in reality, that's, that's not material. It doesn't really matter. But what we create is an overhead for a sales rep that becomes so arduous that they just don't want to put anything in. So even the more critical data becomes lost in the busyness of just data. So we simplified that core element, salesforce.com. Now we've got a very functional, efficient CRM as the core. Then the second piece was on the marketing and the intelligence side. We use Marketo and we did the same thing. We stripped that down to the core of what we have to know and when do we have to know it. And then we, we made that easy and we made that integration very, very complete. And then we've slowly built that out as bandwidth is allowed, as sales attention would allow. Then you start overlaying all kinds of other uh, intelligence tools, things like uh, we deal a lot with the RFP process of a university or a, a government-funded school around the globe. Mm -hmm. So we utilize technologies around RFPs that are publicly published and, and how you pull that data together. Again, the bare bones, the minimum, the core information, and then we grew it to a point where it was still manageable, but very beneficial and efficient. And we've added other tools the same way. Think Outreach, Chorus AI, uh, Mambara, I mean, a few different companies. But we've been very, very deliberate in what we do. 
And I love, you know, when I sit down with my marketing leaders and, and, and my uh, revenue operations leaders, and we've got really good leaders there, but they'll come in and say, we need this product. And I'll say, okay, tell me about it. And they'll, you know, wax poetic about how it'll help us and solve all these problems and whatever else involved. And then, you know, we'll dive into the questioning around what's the overhead to implement? What's the overhead to train? What's the day-to-day overhead that we'll place on that marketing person or that seller? And how will that affect their core objective, which is bookings and revenue? And we'll dive into that very, very deeply. Then we'll talk about, you know, references and how companies have implemented and they always come back and say, oh, they've got, you know, a great reference database. And I say, fantastic. Have you gone out and met with them and seen what they have done? Have they shown you how they've integrated this piece of tech into their system? And have you experienced it firsthand to understand the overhead it places back on the sellers or marketers? And it's usually, well, we haven't got that far yet. Great. Come back when you've seen it and you can speak firsthand based on their experience as to what kind of uh, challenges it will create within our own organization. And then when it passes all these sniff tests, we'll bring it in for a period, give it a shot. We'll review that every 30 days to ensure that tech addition is adding value. And if not, I've been known to, you know, pull the plug on a project six months in and say, listen, this ain't going to happen. You know, we're just creating work and the benefit is not there. And the promise, Ryan, of the benefit is so far down the road that we will literally choke on that product before we ever get anything truly beneficial to the business and move on. Oh man. So you're talking about ease and speed to value. So this is a major from our research internally here at primary intelligence, we have found um, that ease and speed to value are two major indicators of growth and renewal within any account, regardless of what product you're talking about. If it's, too difficult to implement, if it's too difficult to extract whatever insight or value that you're intending to extract from it, uh, the, the likelihood of renewal, it doesn't matter your NPS score, you could give them the best smiley face there is, but if you're not getting those intent, uh, the intended or desired results, not happening. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And you've got to be careful what those intended results are. And, and why I say that is that sometimes for a I'm going to call it a a very specific or a point position within the business. Hmm. They may want a certain data point that can be exemplified through that tech stack very easily. Hmm. But the challenge is for them and their job to get that data point may create overhead for another 12 people. And you have to really weigh those out as you're making these decisions. So Frank, um, you're, you're actually alluding to some things that I think we don't talk enough about in sales intelligence. And that is the impact on the human being trying to do their work, right? So how do you, I mean, that's a mindset that's very different than, than many CROs that I talk with. Why is that a, a focus for you? Why is that so important to you? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Uh, years ago, I learned, Ryan, that um, as a CRO, running a sales organization, 75% of my impact is built on the proper emotion, Mm. 75%. So how I I reposition this uh, for you completely. When I look at delivering the numbers and making a sales organization successful, I've got to play to the emotions of my sellers to ensure that they're motivated, that they are challenged, that they're active, that they're smart, they're doing all the right things to be hyper successful. 
And those aren't necessarily just tools. Those are around how they feel about the tool set we've given them and the instructions and the compensation plan and the go-to-market plans and all the usual things that we have to do. But as sales leaders, we often lose sight of the fact that we are driving an emotional team. They have to feel successful. You know, Daniel Pink's written a lot of books about humans and compensation. Love Dan Pink. Great. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he, he has a lot of really, really cool insights. There's some elements I don't necessarily agree with. Sure. And I, I push back a little bit on, on, on the seller side of what he uh, speaks to in compensation. But it, all the surveys point to the same data points. And that is that a seller feels most fulfilled when uh, the number one thing is recognition is handled properly. And number two is when you fall into the other buckets of compensation or um, ease to do the job, those kinds of elements. So if recognition is number one, it's not the money, it's not that tangible dollar that shows up into their bank account, it's something emotional. Mm. And we lose sight of that sometimes as sales leaders, that we've got to own that emotion for the team and ensure that every day they wake up, they are motivated and ready to go rock and roll. And, uh, and that's an intangible that we have to manage as, as leaders. Okay, so uh, CRO, you're, you, just, you just talked about two diametrically opposed positions. You talked about taking on the feelings and emotions of, of a, a sales human being. And on the other side, being accountable and being held responsible to a very, very high level data. And sometimes those two things do not meet, right? They are in opposition to each other. So how do you, how do you solve this? How do you solve yeah. for this? It, it's it, in my mind, it's relatively simple. It's empathy. It's understanding the role that we've asked them to play mm. and ensuring that we don't make that role impossible. And going back to the tech stack, the uh, conversation we had too often as CROs, we make it impossible here, fill this out here, do this here, do that, do the other thing, spend 30 hours a week inside of your tools, trying to build up this data. Oh, and then by the way, the other 10 hours a week or so, enjoy your job, have a good day. You know, that doesn't work. And that gets back to my original assertion. And that is that when we make decisions around the tech and the tech stack, I put myself in the shoes of that seller. Now there's a certain overhead that has to occur, right? The concept of the old days of just go sell and bring me back the money. But those days are gone. And sellers appreciate that but they also uh, are very loyal to leaders that can demonstrate that level of empathy to understand how bad their job can be if they're overwhelmed or overburdened with the tech stack. Hmm. So it's finding that really fine balance and what's worked for me may not work for any of your listeners or some of your listeners or maybe one of your listeners, but it's something that we as sales leaders have to be innately in tune to or we're going to, you know, kill the golden goose who are our sellers. Okay. So I, I love this. Okay. We're going down, we're going down the right path here. Let, let's, we've talked about this, the, the tech stack. Now the tech stack is different for different roles inside of an organization, right? You have uh, a CRO is going to care about certain data points and tech, a sales coach, a frontline rep, a marketer, they're going to have slightly different approaches to everything. Um, what do you think from, from a CRO perspective, 
where does the voice of the customer land in in in, in this exercise that you uh, you engage in with figuring out what makes the most sense to bring you know the 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 siren song of data how loud is the voice of the customer yeah i th i think uh, in many ways it should be the loudest voice at every level tell, okay tell me more i want to hear about this yeah. yeah. So, you know, you think about the voice of the customer and you think about it from an executive level, a CRO level or a SVP of sales, VP of sales, uh, director of sales. We want to hear what the customer thinks for a couple of reasons. One is how are our sellers performing? How are they interacting? Is the messaging landing? Is it not landing? Are the soft skills that we train for and hire for landing or not landing? And if not, why? And if so, why? As a rep, one of the challenges that I always had when I was a rep way back when, let me see, this would have been just after the signing of the Constitution. So <laughs> maybe yeah, the late, Rand McNally maps to get around. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah, yeah. Late 1780s or something like that, it feels <laughs> like. But, you know, I, I always viewed myself as a very effective frontline seller. But I'll guarantee you that I could line up hundreds, if not thousands of, of prospects and customers that time that thought that I was not the guy, I, I wasn't doing it well, but I was delivering results. And, and bluntly, when my boss looked at me and said, you know, how do you feel? I'd say, ah, great. I get it. I get the product. I get the position. I get the value selling. I get all these wonderful things. But what I have as far as self-perception and self-awareness overlaid with a customer's perspective may be entirely different. So when you start talking about um, this, this buyer-centric information, it becomes critical from the rep so that they can get better in a non-threatening way, all the way up to that CRO who's making giant decisions involving a very massive organization based on the data findings, what's going on in the market. I think back to the Challenger sale, and I think that book came out in what, 2010, 2009, something like that. Brett Adamson and, and Matt Dixon did a research project. And I remember being invited to the, the book opening down in Las Vegas when they were announcing the book and, and rolling it out. And I just sat there literally uh, with a giant grin on my face, doing one of these slap your forehead things about, holy crap, we finally understand from a buyer or customer's perspective what kind of sellers resonate with the current buying environment. Mm. And I thought that book was revolutionary. And, you know, we could talk about that book for hours if you'd like, or the evolution and some of the things that the team is doing. Dixon's doing a bunch of new stuff now. But, but just that perspective was eye-opening for me. And I made that the platform um, around uh, my sales organizations from the release of the book. And I think it was right around 2010 onward and it's it's made all the difference because we understood the buyer's behavior now now take that to a more micro level ryan imagine if every week every month every quarter i could get really good direct feedback from the prospects and buyers around how the message is landing how my sellers are resonating with them around our decks our value statements think how powerful that would be for me as a CRO, making decisions around staffing, territory alignment, challenges, product marketing, marketing, all the elements that run my business. And suddenly I've, I've got the golden keys, right? I've got the keys to the village 
because I understand what they really want, not just what a magazine may tell me or some research project that's six months old, but what is resonating with my prospects and buyers today. And I could move very quickly. You know, business used to be pretty slow, you know, very lethargic in making changes to a lot of the messaging. I can change my messaging in 24 hours. You know, you want us to go from, you know, everyone learns together as an educational tool. Tomorrow morning, I could release a brand new, you know, more market applicable message if I found that to be the need. Now, we're not going to do that overnight. We would be a little more thoughtful, of course, in that process. But business is moving infinitely quicker. Yes. And we have the technology and tools to pivot based on where we see those buyers in the market. And again, I, I want to just caution that, that I'm speaking... I hyperbolically here, you know, you wouldn't want to be doing this, but uh, you want to be uh, cognizant that what worked for you yesterday may not work for you tomorrow. And that's where that buyer intelligence becomes uh, supremely powerful in what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And that's, man, you have a CRO in today's environment. It's a, it's a extraordinary, extraordinary position to be in Uh, so many competing interests and at the core of it is what you just said, what worked yesterday may not work today or even tomorrow. And, you know, being able to change into what is working is invaluable. And it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, the voice of the customer is a tool that you employ to help you make better decisions on direction. Am, am I reading that right? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. And, and you bring up a great point. Let me, let me highlight it with a story is that years ago, I took over as a CRO of a company. And, and the former sales leader um, was uh, very senior in his career, had run a playbook multiple times, had been you know, immensely successful for him, but it wasn't quite resonating with the current organization. And I met with this person and we spent a lot of time together and the CEO implored me and said, listen, don't, don't shoot this guy. Um, you know, let's give him a chance, help him, get him to where he needs to be. And what I found, it was old dog, new tricks, right? Mm-hmm but this particular old dog didn't have a lot of interest or desire to learn new tricks. He had that old playbook, Ryan, that worked really, really well 10 years ago and it was not working. And, and what I found is that as sales leaders, number one, we have to be hungry for growth and change. And I'm not talking about organizational hunger. I'm talking about personal hunger. Mm. And, and that's why, you know, when, when I, when I do new employee orientations, we, have a phenomenal enablement team here run by a gentleman named Paul Butterfield. And I get the opportunity to address all new hires every month. So they have a graduating class and I'm part of the commencement speaker, you know, for the graduating class. I make it sound much cooler than it is. It's a one hour Zoom call. That's what it is. Hey, you know, I, but, you know, I, you said commencement. All of a sudden I'm, I'm thinking very cool. So there you it, go. I'm sure it's, it's cool. awesome. It's cool. And, you know, I, I always talk to them about what I designed in my own messaging many years ago. And that's, I call it I cubed, I to the power of three. And that's around intensity to succeed in my organization. You've got to be really going after the business. The second I is intelligence. And that's the ability to constantly and continually learn and grow and develop and morph your behavior to match your intelligence and what the market demands. And the third I is integrity. And that's being open and honest about where you're strong and where you're weak, working on your weaknesses, uh, amplifying your strengths, 
and delivering, you know, exceptionally for what the business needs from your role. And that's uh, what I did years ago. I, you know, kind of initiated this concept of I3 and it's, it's bluntly held very well. And now the market demands that the intelligence part becomes more and more critical. And that speaks to the business intelligence, the customer intelligence, the buyer intelligence, the seller or salesperson intelligence, the leader intelligence, uh, the marketing uh, director's intelligence around how to take that data, ensure that it is actionable, and then putting it into action, the act of using it. Yeah. And so well, let's, do let's go here. Let, yeah. Let's go here. We want to go to tactics, right? So give me some tactics, uh, you know, that, that you employ, Frank, by the way, I cubed love that. That's fantastic. Easy to, easy to employ. Makes sense. Um, how, how can B2B business businesses leverage sales intelligence to power revenue growth? You know, what, are, what, what should they do? Yeah. The, the first is really explore and take a look at the tools available. I know PI has got some phenomenal offerings and understand where they fit in your business. Now, if you are adding tech on top of tech, stop, stop, take a deep breath, go back to your tech stack with a scalpel or a chainsaw and make whatever changes you need to, to simplify and be empathetic to that seller's um, activities and then add intelligently. And that's where these kinds of tools come in. You know, there's no question in my mind that this, if you were to order a tech stack, the first thing you would buy is not a buyer intelligence tool. You know, it's gonna be that CRM. So you gotta be smart about how you approach this. But if you don't understand why your buyers are buying and how your sellers are resonating to those buyers, you have got to stop and take a look at this data and figure this out. So um, you gave two very explicit things to do. First, I, I like the, the imagery that you use, scalpel or chainsaw, you know, a dealer's choice. Uh, but go, go, go chop it up and make it sim simplify it. And then second, listen to what your, your, your customers are saying. You, you mentioned another piece of the tech stack that I want to actually unpack a little bit that I think um, is somewhat nascent still. And that is, you mentioned chorus. So conversational intelligence is, is somewhat new to the game, right? It really is. Um, how do you see conversational intelligence really kind of on the front end of the sales cycle? How does that potentially pair up with, say, the voice of the customer on the on the back end, if at all? Yeah, I, I think it actually has a nice pairing. I don't know if the promise has been delivered really, but I think it's getting closer. And, you know, we uh, my enablement guys came to me and said, listen, let's put together this, this chorus AI, this kind of uh, uh, voice intelligence technology that we can record these calls and really see how things move and and they can do all this machine learning against it and and bluntly they will say ai against it and try to figure out what we need to do and why we need to do it um, I, I think the challenges are twofold one is adoption of the technology uh, being empathetic to the sellers quite often they have a real pushback to being recorded and I think that has to do with potential guilt in case something doesn't work out well, that will be held against them in court, if you know what I mean. Everything you say will and can yeah. be used in the court of law. That's it, exactly. And so I think they're a little bit reticent to have their calls recorded because someone's going to hear them make a mistake and they're concerned about protecting their perceived value in the market. And so we had to work very closely in the beginning to let them know that this was a penalty-free zone. 
that we're using this for intelligence gathering, not only about their behavior and how we need to better train, but around the buyers and what people are saying on the calls and, and how that resonates to either support or dispel our value statements in the marketplace. So the first is getting the adoption down. The second is around the tech piece. And that's come a long ways. And you think about uh, the, the voice of the buyer on these calls, about traditional sales calls and how those calls go, whether it be a Zoom-based call or a phone-based call. I don't know if many of the sellers anymore know what a phone-based call is. It's all gone to Zoom. You know, you got to dress up every day now, I guess. But uh, it's, it's getting these, these, these data points, these nuggets together. But I don't think it replaces the very overt and specific asking of what went well and what went poorly in a sales environment that comes with, with customer interrogation or prospect interrogation post-sales cycle, win or lose. And I think that really starts to feed together and make some sense because think about a day when you can go back and review your chorus recorded conversations and compare the, the AI and the findings with what the customer actually says at the end of the cycle and says, you know, listen, I was uh, wholly unimpressed with your seller. I thought they were far too aggressive and I thought they were mean spirited. And you go back and look at the chorus data and during the cycle, when these calls were happening, you find none of those attributes or you find the attributes that support exactly what that seller was saying post-interview. Mm. And suddenly you really know how to train and enable that corrective behavior to get to a better place with the next prospect for the next step. Okay. So Frank, you're, you're melting my brain here. You're a CRO who's dealing with a, a fairly large uh, software organization, by the way, love Canva. We use Canva at my house. I have kids that are in high school and in college and they, we love Canva, but yeah, Can Canvas, we've got nearly 40 million students using our technology every day. So Can yeah. Uh, Canvas is, it's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. But anyway, long, long of the short of the whole thing is, um, you know, you're talking about an in impacting an individual rep, an individual, right? You, you didn't say, how do we impact all of the sales rep? You were talking about empathy and thinking about the individual sellers. Um, you know, why is focusing on the individual sales rep important? What, why think at that, at that granularity? Well, you have to, you, you know, it's, it's interesting that in a market where um, selling talent is becoming more and more rare, it's around ensuring that you're developing that talent internally as well as as you can. And you don't do that by, by lumping everyone together in a classroom of 30 or 40 sellers and saying, you all need to do these five things without knowing that, that Sally does them and Bobby doesn't. And when you get down to that granular level, Ryan, and you're talking about people and you're respecting them as a seller, a person, an individual, and you're willing to invest the, um, the resources, the time, the money, to make them better, it helps create that commitment to the company. Mm. And it helps create a better seller, which will equate to better selling results. And that's what we're looking for. You know, I, I've got roughly 300 or so people in my organization. And I'll tell you that, that if I could depend on one or two to deliver my, my bookings every quarter, why would I need the other 298? I can't, it's not realistic. I need the entire team to performing at every level for me to get to where I need to get to. 
And the only way I can accomplish that is by paying attention through this intelligence down to that micro level, that individual seller level and making them better. Mm. So let, let me give, let's, let's play magic picks you want for a second. So, um, you know, you have now the power to say, okay, sales intelligence softwares out there in the world, um, do this better. You know, what do you need as a CRO? What do you need to be improved from your sales intelligence tech, uh, tech um, to, to really make your job easier? You've talked about making individual reps, but let, let's talk about making a CRO job easier. Yeah, yeah, great question, because heaven knows that uh, anytime we can make my job easier, the happier I will be, Ryan. Right. Uh, we all have tough jobs, right? And, and I read a recent report that the average lifespan for a CRO in any given role, any given company is less than 18 months. Yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. And, uh, you know, I've, I've not seen that in my personal career, which I guess speaks to uh, um, me being able to deliver at certain level, certain needs for the business. But, but it's just crazy, the amount of turnover in the CRO office, because it is a hard job. Mm. You're trying to make sellers sell. You're trying to make marketers mark market, you're trying to make um, uh, a CEO uh, look good on Wall Street or whatever, you know, financial funding system, you may be using private equity, growth equity, whatever. You're trying to make a board of directors happy. And you're trying to serve very disparate markets and, and stakeholders in different ways. And it's, it's a hard, it's a hard gig. But it's also the best job in the world, Ryan, I wouldn't do anything else. If you were to offer me a starting position on the Golden State Warriors, uh, I wouldn't take it. Well, first of all, hold on a second. Wait, you just passed up the dubs who are about to be crowned champion again. Listen, I feel you, man. And, uh, but you have to understand something. Well, two things. One is I don't play basketball well. <laughs> two, that's just not my dream, but I know it's right, true. Right, right. But, uh, you know, anything that we can do to provide a CRO with more tangible, actionable insight around buyer behavior it's going to empower this role to be successful within the organization. If we listen, if we question, if we explore. So uh, this is one area that, you know, I made the comment early on in the discussion around it's kind of a burgeoning area that's coming together. Yeah. And I think in the next 24 to 36 months, we're going to see a, a complete shift in the market towards this data. And that's what should be terribly exciting for the folks at PI, because that's where you're sitting. But it's also a, a big responsibility and a burden on your shoulders. You've got to listen and you've got to learn and most importantly, deliver at an exceptional pace to accelerate this kind of bit buyer intelligence in the marketplace. Mm. All right. So listen, uh, this has been a phenomenal conversation, Frank, very thoughtful. Um, surprisingly, the, 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 you know, I was very surprised at your focus on the empathy of the individual. I loved that, man. That, that made my day. So thank you for bringing that to the table. Um, let's leave our listeners with, with kind of a final piece of advice. If you were sitting down uh, talking with, with, with uh, so, some of our listeners, what's one piece of advice that you would kind of leave our, our listeners with? Yeah, I'll give you the same advice. I recently gave a, a room full of CROs at an investor conference. And I said, don't settle. Those two words, don't settle. And what I mean by that is very simple. Don't settle 
for people around you that report directly to you that are good, but not great. Ensure that your head of marketing, your head of North American sales, your head of revenue operations, your head of sales enablement, make sure that they are world-class and that everything they bring to the table will make you more successful. Don't settle on what I did yesterday is as good as I need because it isn't. No matter how much we'd love the world to stand still and the markets to stand still, they don't. Every day, buyer behavior changes, influenced by uh, socioeconomic issues, all kinds of things. And we have to always be willing to change, move, improve, and explore to keep ourselves relevant and effective in the marketplace. So simple two words, don't settle. As soon as you settle, you're dead. And you're part of that 18-month figure that I gave you for CEO's life expectancy in a role. Mm, Frank, don't settle. So uh, two thoughts. First, uh, phenomenal advice. Number two, I'm glad you didn't get a hold of my wife before she said yes. Uh, because <laughs> I feel I was, the same way, Ryan. That was my strategy. That yeah. was my strategy. So <laughs> yeah, it, it took anyway. me three years for my wife to settle on me and we've been married 35. So it, uh, I understand the payoff. Yeah. Frank, listen, thank you for the time. You've been uh, just amazing. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the insights and don't settle. Thanks for the time, Frank. Amen, brother. Thanks, Ryan. And listeners, for more from our friends at Instructure and Primary Intelligence, check out the show notes at primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And remember, no deal is out of reach. We'll see you next time.